Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft's Rowell podcast. I'm your host for this advertising space, and I want to thank our sponsors that make this podcast totally possible. The first sponsor is Sig Sauer. Guys, Sig is an awesome company. I'm a Sig nerd when it comes to their products. I'm a Sig junkie when it comes to training at the Sig Sauer Academy. There's always a Sig project that I want to kind of mess around with. And my current Sig project, in case you're interested, is building up a SIG 220 pistol that I should be able to acquire pretty soon from some department trade-ins a couple towns over from my hometown, put on a threaded barrel for that guy, and then attach that, or I should say attach my SRD 45 suppressor, which is made by SIG, to that pistol. And that will be my dedicated 45 ACP suppressor pistol. So I don't know. Like I said, I'm a nerd. Um, I built up a lot of different things over the years, plugging and playing with the 320 and the 365 and the SIG tread pistol and the MPX, which by the way, the MPX is probably the most fun firearm you will ever shoot uh, just because the trigger is super, super fine, very little recoil. And, you know, people joke and they say that the MPX is the MP5 killer. And I'm not surprised. Uh, Guys, Sig Sauer is one of those companies, like I said, they have products, they have training, please check out the Sig Sauer Academy. There are a lot of good folks that train up there. I've had incredible opportunities to train with Sig. Bullets on vehicles is one of my favorite classes. The three-day introduction to long range or precision scope rifle, that's a great class. The defensive shotgun class is awesome. You know, a lot of people poo-poo the shotgun and the instructors up at Sig, they know how to run a gun. And when you are you know, using the combination of a shotgun and a pistol and, you know, you're getting a chance to work around barriers. And I mean, it's just a fun class playing with the pig. So please check out Sig Sauer. Please check out Sig Sauer Academy. They are solid, solid people, great company, and we're proud to be affiliated with them. There is another company we want to recognize, and that is Vertex. Guys, there is a discount code that I want to alert you to, and that's 20% off using the code Get this, ready? Really original? Fieldcraft. That's F-I-E-L-D-C-R-A-F-T. Fieldcraft will get you 20% off of the Vertex website. And Vertex is a company that we've partnered up with over the, the past couple of years. They've attended a couple of our trade shows. I know a bunch of the guys here have Vertex bags. You know, I've worn Vertex pants for a while. You know, I, I'm more familiar with their apparel than their bags, but I'll tell you that their pants, when I did a... TV pilot show for the History Channel in 2016. I wore a pair of their pants through the desert and 25 miles through all sorts of nasty stuff. Their pants was, I, I put all this like pine resin inside my pant pockets. I still have those pants to this day with that resin in there. Uh, those pants are going on six years now and they're badass. They're great, great for training. So uh, the interesting thing with, with Vertex, in addition to getting 20% off of your order, you can... Pay attention to their site because maybe, and I'm saying maybe, but I really mean definitely, we'll be launching an updated version of our recce shirt. We had it a generation one recce shirt. It was really, really popular. It's my favorite travel shirt to this day, right? There are buttons on it instead of, or snap buttons instead of just like regular buttons. And it's just a really comfortable shirt. Well, I've seen the prototype of the one that Vertex is doing and it's great. So pay attention. It's coming up. That's going to be the new recce shirt from Vertex. Again, 20% off of their site with the code FIELDCRAFT. And their site is www.vertex, that's V-E-R-T-X.com. All right, guys, here we go. Let's get to this podcast. 
Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for this episode. My name is Kevin Estella. I'm the Director of Training here in Aberdeen, North Carolina. And uh, it's a wet one outside today. Like, I, I'm not going to lie, like I'm doing this, I'm a little soaked. The uh, oh, it's, uh, it's that weird time of year where, uh, you know, we've got a whole bunch of pollen out here. And my God, if, you, if my voice sounds a little strange, it's probably because I'm swallowing a whole bunch of, of pine pollen. Well, guys, that's not going to stop me from bringing you a really awesome episode. And this one is, is kind of interesting because the guest who I have on is actually a referral of a friend of mine who I've never met. So I've never met this guest and I never met my friend who I had on previously. And if you heard the podcast that I did with Ryan Atkinson, uh, who goes by Fieldworks on, on Instagram, it was about executive protection. It was about his job working in uh, security, his his love affair with different knives that are out there. And I mean, we, we had a good time and, and Ryan was like, you got to talk to, you got to talk to my buddy. So, uh, I want to introduce you to Todd Fox of tour protection. And I think this is going to be another one of those where you're going to be like, man, this guy has lived a life and he's got a lot of lessons to share and we're going to do a deep dive, but I don't even know where the heck to begin other than saying, Todd, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so excited to have you on here because I've been doing some research, you know, Ryan was like, yeah, take a look at, you know, what Todd does. And I was like, where do I even begin with this? Because I mean, you had a long career in the military and then obviously working with celebrities left and right, working their protective detail, which I mean, we can talk, I mean, probably at nauseum of all the different things that you have to account for when you're running someone's detail. But I mean, let's just start from the beginning, um, before the Marine Corps, what was life like? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if there was a before the Marine Corps. <laughs> um, I, was, I was in high school, so I joined the Marine Corps at 17. So for me, I was into martial arts. I was a wrestler, you know, probably made a lot of choices that I wouldn't now in my old age in, in terms of fighting and running around and being crazy. Um, and the Marine Corps was a good corrective action on my part. So I, I did that voluntarily. I was motivated because Marines, you know, they shoot, they fight, they travel around the world. They get those cool uniforms. Those are the things that, that motivated me to, to join and, and then kind of start in the direction that I'm going in now. And that was, well, that was 30 years ago. How competitive was that wrestling program that you were in? Because I've had some some former students who, you know, we've got a pretty decent wrestling program from the high school that I used to teach at and I attended. And I had a, a few kids say like, man, the the boot camps that they went through in various branches of, of the military, they're like, man, that our wrestling program was like on par with how difficult it can be. And it prepared them. I mean, did you find that that was true for you going through through uh, the wrestling program at your high school and then joining the Corps? Yeah, that that is absolutely true, and and I can only give my experience. But mm -hmm. my fitness level went down going into boot camp, and you know all of my metrics literally went down. And the physical component it was a joke. You know, wrestling practices for us most of the year were were two hours uh, after school, and then when you get close to state, they'd add an hour on the front end, so you'd be there, you know, from six to seven in the morning, go to school all day, and then you'd be training from four to six at night, and and, you know, that's six days a week. And then you'd have the competitions on top of it. And, you know, there was no tolerance. There was no grab ass. It was mm -hmm. all work. Um, and, and the mindset that it took to be successful in that realm produced great Marines from my perspective. All the guys that were in the Marine Corps with me who wrestled were all accelerated. All of them drove through the physical components easy. So, you know, we 
we used to do, and I, I don't know what the Marine Corps is doing now, but we used to do a 300-based PFT, right? So you'd have an 18-minute, uh, three-mile run. You'd have 20 dead hang pull-ups. You'd have, you know, 100 sit-ups in two minutes or whatever it was. And most of those guys could blow through that and be 300 PFTers based on on their wrestling background alone. And um, I can give you like an example. Yeah. When I went to boot camp, I was doing uh, 28 dead hang pull-ups. When I left boot camp, I was doing 20. So I lost strength in boot camp. Man. And did you find that you lost weight in boot camp? I mean, were you wrestling at a certain weight class and did you did you leave boot camp at a lower weight or did you gain it? No, I, I actually gained a little bit of weight because I was doing less intensity kind of movements and activities in boot camp mm -hmm. than I was in, in, say, wrestling and martial arts. So I ended up being a little bit heavier because I was taking in more calories and not, not burning as many. Gotcha. Damn. <laughs> so that's a, a little bit of advice there. If anyone's listening who has kids in high school and they have a aspiration to go into any of the branches of the military, get them into wrestling and teach them to be tough. So now you get into the Marine Corps and you get out of boot camp and what's the first assignment you have? Where, where are you going? Well, in the Marine Corps, you, so all Marines are, are considered riflemen first. So mm -hmm. no matter what your job is, you would do follow on training. So let's say, you know, your job is an admin clerk. You would go after boot camp to Marine combat training, and then you'd follow on to whatever that, that job is, that MOS. And in my case, you know, I had a bunch of jobs in the Marine Corps, uh, again, called MOSs. I had a bunch of different MOSs mm -hmm. and I went to multiple schools to learn those different MOSs. My primary job in the Marine Corps was infantry. And as you go through the process, you know, there are different designators. So in my case, I was a rifleman at 0311. Uh, as you go through the experience, you can pick up new designators. And your when your rank changes, your MOS also changes. So in my case, when uh, when I became a staff sergeant, a staff NCO, I went from an 0311 to 0369. So that means you go from a rifleman, which is one job on the team, to being an overall guy, right? So uh, at staff sergeant, they call a small unit leader. And then I ended up spending more time out of it than in it. And we do these things called B-billets. B-billets are kind of like secondary duty, recruiting duty, drill instructor duty, Marine security guard at embassy duty, those kinds of things. So the vast majority of my Marine Corps career, I ended up in totally different areas doing really wild, odd jobs, which created, you know, something very different than what the normal Marine Corps experience does. Yeah, man, I'm looking at your, your website right now and, you know, I see where you, you have listed, you know, platoon sergeant, squad leader, but then you scroll down and there are some, some flags where you're like, hold on, hold on. <laughs> right? Like I'm, I'm looking here and like, I see some stuff that's like, okay, recruiting, you know, I've had former students that have become recruiters, but I mean, before I get to the big one, I see dishwasher slash cook. And then I see motion yep. picture liaison. So I, those to me seem like the far left and the right limits. And I just, I, I need to hear it from you. Like, can, can we expand on the burger? Yeah, dishwasher yeah, absolutely. Thing? Yeah. So, um, so in the Marine Corps, you know, you, you will have times between jobs and times between schools. And a lot of times you get put into secondary duties, like washing dishes, like being a cook. Um, and, and I think if, if I'm correct, I think that's gone away. I think that stuff is all kind of civilian now. So they don't mm -hmm. have those specific jobs anymore, at least in terms of the field level. So I ended up finding out about specific things. And I was fighting at the time, and we'll talk about that later, but I was fighting in what is now called MMA. At the time, it was called No Holds Barred. And I wanted to stay near different training centers so that I can continue to fight and train with the Gracie family. And 
So I found out about different jobs in the Marine Corps and I would lobby for them. I figure out how, how it works, who was in charge of it, how they could help me get to that next spot. And I'd talk to them, I'd work with them, I'd give my time and energy to them and they would help me kind of get to that next thing. And so getting from say, you know, cooking in a kitchen to getting in the infantry to say getting into like the motion picture liaison, first you have to know that it exists. So I'll give you an example. I was fighting and working on recruiting duty uh, in St. Louis. And while I was doing that, I ended up working with this guy in the Marine Corps who worked at what's called the Federal Records Center. And at the Federal Records Center, there's a tiny little office with two Marines in it, one chief warrant officer and one enlisted Marine who, you know, is usually a corporal or a sergeant. And what they do is they basically get these records. They have these vaults, right? They have a vault and then they have a skiff. And basically what they do is they get these records on past former Marines and they look at that data and say, okay, this guy went to SEER school. This guy went to this course. This guy was reprimanded for these behaviors. And they create this personality profile and they pass it off to the feds who then in turn go look into that person's background to figure out, you know, what it is they need to know. And, and this can be in the case of somebody that's a celebrity that's saying certain things about their service. This can be in the case of, you know, an active shooter situation unfolding. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why they need to look at your background and build a personality profile after you got out. So I found out about that, which meant I could stay in town after recruiting, after my time was done there, stay in the Marine Corps and continue to fight. So I lobbied for that when the guy that was in the position that I took had end, ended active service EAS. Uh, I went in that billet. I took that billet. I learned that job. I got what they call the OJT MOS, meaning on the job training for that particular MOS. And then bam, I was there. While I was there, this is a long story, but while I was there, I found out that there's a motion picture liaison in the Marine Corps. It's, it's for all branches of service. But basically the DOD, the Department of Defense at the Pentagon, authorizes certain um, producers, executive uh, filmmakers to utilize Marine Corps assets or DOD-wide assets because they believe that the script would benefit the Marine Corps from a recruiting perspective. And they would approve it and then they would send the script to me. I'd look at the script and say, okay, hey, this is good, this is bad, whatever it is. And then I'll go out on set and we'd give them a base so they'd get to go to, say, Camp Pendleton and they'd get Marines who are actively, you know, working on whatever it was they were doing and they would film it and they'd use them as extras. And then basically you'd go out and you'd teach actors how to walk and talk and uh, act like Marines. So that's that's how those kind of wildly different jobs occurred. It was through lobbying and networking and figuring out what was out there and how to get to that thing. Right place in the right time. I mean, I, I've heard a of stories. Of too, yeah. I've heard of those stories where like certain movies are like the greatest recruiting tool ever, right? Like, uh, what was it? Behind enemy Top lines. Gun. Top, Top gun. Top gun is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. You know, when you look at that case study, it's massive. And so, you know, the department of defense needs bodies, right? <laughs> they always need bodies, especially now. So there's a guy sitting in an office at the Pentagon who's got a relationship with the entertainment community. The entertainment community wants to produce these cool things and they want it to be realistic, but they also want access to the assets that DOD has. It can be jets, it can be light armored vehicles, it can be just a bunch of guys in uniform, a general shot. It can be the base and the activities going on in the base. So, you know, they, they kind of cross promote each other. And um, it, it's something that at least me as a young guy, I wasn't aware of this. And no Marine that I've ever talked to, you know, out of thousands of Marines ever heard of this. Man, was there a movie in your childhood or your adolescence, like Heartbreak Ridge or any of those that kind of brought you to the Marines and not 
um, any of the other branches? No, in, in hindsight, I think Full Metal Jacket would have been a great movie to see before going into Marine Corps, but I, I was already a Marine by the time I saw that. I had a, a couple cousins who were Marines. Uh, they were physically fit. You know, they had really interesting stories to tell, uh, and they were different from other people that I had talked to that were their age. So their experience was through the roof. Man, yeah, because I, I looked on your site, and, you know, I saw some photos with some some actors. I mean, are there any that you still keep in regular touch with that you worked with or any movies that you want to bring up that you're particularly proud of? Uh, no, I mean, I got to work on a, a full gamut. And to give you kind of my age at the time that I was doing that job, um, one of the most popular television shows was called JAG. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was a technical advisor on JAG and they would have different episodes and we would shoot in different locations. Uh, that was pretty cool. The guy that produced that is named Donald Belisario. And, you know, you look at a list of things right now that are even out from all the way from the 80s and Magnum PI to, to modern day kind of television. That guy's a godfather, especially when it comes to, to military stuff. And he took care of, of that. So that was cool. Um, I get sent to Prague to shoot the Born Identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the whole thing was about a scene that was in the ladder well, in the stairwell, you know, where, where Jason Bourne is, is clearing a, a stairwell and the Marine MSG guys are coming after him. And uh, so they brought me in to basically bring those Marines from MSG duty, from the Marine Security Guard program, train them relative to the camera, and then get them to integrate into the movie as extras. So that was a pretty cool experience to, to work with, with Matt Damon on The Bourne Identity, the, the initial one. Now, the fight coordinator for that was Jeff Amata, right? Yeah. So the the way that the fight coordinator works is he's dealing with all scenes. So yeah. he's brought in to deal with everything, every aspect. And, and what we're brought in to do is to deal with the tactic side. And sometimes they cross over and sometimes they don't. A lot of times it's it's the director who's saying, you know what, that doesn't look sexy. We're going to change that. I know you would never be at you know High Port or Sewell or whatever position mm-hmm. exists. They say, we're going to do this. And like, yeah, Marines wouldn't do it that way, but they're going to do it their way. So same with the fight scenes. You know, they brought him in. Actually, there were, I think there were three guys at, at the time in that particular scene. And they had a... Um, a Czech gentleman who was dressed up as a Marine. And so if you see a guy getting ragdolled, that was a, a Czech gentleman, not an actual Marine. Got it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, stand at high port or Sewell or, you know, being very specific with that. Have you been tracking the controversy lately with some of the police agencies talking about, you know, using temple index for running? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, from my side, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that we do doesn't make sense. Right. And, and mm-hmm. for me, just personally, I want the most basic, simple, natural thing. I don't want something complex. I don't want to look cool. I don't, none of that stuff. So I don't, use temple index mainly because the gun is distraction by the side and I never stand with my hand up by my head. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, if I'm going to put the gun in front of me, I kind of want the front sight in front of me and I kind of want it center aligned and I can move my body and I know where the, the port is at. And it's, it's like, it's, it's very simple, right? The biomechanics work for me. So I don't, I don't do, you know, any type of temple work. I don't do anything, you know, like I mentioned Sewell just because that's a common thing yeah, that I think yeah. Sewell is shit. You know, you say that and, and Mike Glover, our, our half Asian CEO is Korean and I know it's from, you know, Korean for South, but, uh, you know, I want to, I want to get into the interesting stuff that you did with the combatives and, and with the jujitsu game. Like when, when did you make that transition? And I'm assuming it was sometime while you were obviously after high school, after the, the wrestling career, when you made that transition to jujitsu and you realized, okay, my game should not be, you know, belly down. I need to be comfortable on my back. Like, 
that's a real struggle for a lot of folks to, to just put yourself on your back and go in and pull guard. Because if you go from that wrestling culture to that, it's, it feels like you're holding hands with your sister walking on the street. It's just not, just not right. Yeah. So I mean, that's like, a steep learning curve. Yeah. So can you kind of talk through that a little bit about, you know, uh, moving? Yeah. And it, it, it intertwines with, with, with what we already talked about. Mm-hmm. So I was on recruiting duty in the Marine Corps and right next to my recruiting office, this martial arts school popped up. And, um, at the time I was teaching martial arts, I was teaching karate and, uh, I'm like, okay, cool. I want to check this out. So I told my instructor about it, who was an old retired Marine and also a, a police officer. I told him about it. And he's like, why don't you go in there and, and you know check it out, and see what you got? Hoist Gracie's doing amazing things. And this was like '95, so UFC had been out for two years. And uh, he said, go check it out. And one day after work, uh, I went in and uh, the instructor said, yeah, come on back tomorrow. You know, we'll have guys in here training and whatever. So great, come back. I come back the next day. He throws me in with a kid who's probably like 16 years old, 150 pounds, looks like a freaking dork. And the kid tooled me up, completely tooled me up. I, I didn't understand. Took him down. I'm on top. And all of a sudden, he's got his legs wrapped around my arm and neck. Mm-hmm. I don't see what's actually happening. And I tap. So I think this is a fluke. This isn't real. That couldn't have just happened. I made a mistake. No big deal. I'll fix it. We go again. Same exact outcome, right? So this little kid told me. So we switch rounds, go with another person. I get beat up again. Another round, beat up again. So I couldn't wrap my head around how that happened. I was used to kicking everybody's ass. I was the man. and All of a sudden, now I'm getting tooled up by these little kids. So it took probably several months before I could really understand the concepts of jujitsu, which are counter to wrestling, counter to, to nature, actually. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that experience really, really forced me mentally to accept weakness and, and to be humble, right? And it was a good good timing because I was in my mid-20s and, you know, cocky kid and all of a sudden I'm getting tooled up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that story plays, Very plays special out experience all the time. to have. Yeah, that story plays out all the time. I, I don't know how many guys I've talked to. It's happened to me where it's like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm powerlifting with my buddy Todd or, you know, like I'm at 225 and I – you know, get a, a Royal serving of, of humble pie by the 150 pounder, you know, or the 135 pounder. I'm like, what just happened? Right. So, so for those of you that are just starting your journey and you're like, man, this isn't for me. I keep, I keep screwing up, you know, it does get better. And, uh, you took it to the next level. Like you took it. I mean, you're already, you know, like going on your website, I'm seeing multiple championships, you know, and you did the touring circuit, I think, of of all the different jujitsu tournaments, right? I mean, was that a, a big portion of your yeah. life? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I competed most of my life. I travel around the world in 60 countries on average a year. So there's not a lot of time to spend at the competition level. I mean, I can't train two, three, four hours a day. And so as a black belt going to like a big tournament, I'm going to deal with a large number of people. I'm a middleweight which means that I have the most people in my bracket, in my division. So I'm going to be a black belt. I'm going to be a middleweight. I'm going to go here and at major tournaments like national tournaments or international tournaments. I may have a hundred guys in my bracket and, you know, in order to train and, and compete at that level, I need to train at least three hours a day, six days a week. So while I'm traveling, I don't have access to that. I'm doing mm-hmm. 20 hours a day moving country to country, city to city. So when I had downtime, which was COVID, I jumped right back into the scene. And um, so, you know, I would compete in what's called IBJJF. I can 
competed in AGF, competed in Naga, competed in all these different events at nationals, at the U.S. Open, at the World Championship. And I, I did well. Um, so those are the pictures that you're seeing there. So I have a ton of titles. But the thing is, kind of like the jiu-jitsu experience in general, I don't really give a shit about the competition. The competition part of it is is not meaningful to me, meaning getting a medal. The thing is, when I do this, I have to deal with my emotions. I have to deal with kind of the, the pressure, the anxiety of, of fighting against these guys. They have different styles. You know, they have different levels. Uh, uh-huh. And they're coming at you to do harm to you. And this is this is something very different. I, I don't want to fail. And I especially don't want to disappoint the people that are on my team. And and knowing that, you know, it builds anxiety in you. So managing that anxiety is the value of tournaments for me. To be able to go there, to walk into this room, to have four or five fights and come out victorious is is huge. But it's not for the medal. It's it's for that feeling and management of that feeling. And that feeling in in that management, it's it's something that a lot of people don't understand is when you put yourself into a scenario like that and you are, you're running on, on high, right? Super stressed out when you get to your regular nine to five and maybe not your nine to five, cause your nine to five is very stressful, I'm sure. But like, say like the banker or, you know, say the, the construction worker or like your average Joe, when they go from that high of, of adrenaline and everything is just firing and then they go to their nine to five and someone's like, man, we have a lot of work to do. It's like, ah, you might call it work. I call it a task work is what they put in on the mat, you know? So it's, it's all relative, you know, it's a, it, it kind of makes you appreciate your regular nine to five and, and not see it as, you know, hard work because you actually know what hard work is. Hey guys, it's Amber L here. And I wanted to tell you about our, one of our partners, it's Athletic Greens. Um, but more specifically, I wanted to tell you about AG1 by Athletic Greens. And if you're familiar with my lifestyle at all, or follow me in any capacity, you know that I have really taken ownership of my health and wellness over the last year. And I hold myself to new standards and I've implemented some really strict disciplines that have extremely increased my overall wellness and vitality. And that's so important to me as a mom, but also for someone who takes their own Um, self-defense and their own empowerment really seriously. And so one place where I feel like we all fall short is trying to keep up with our supplement routine. And AG1 is a life hack of sorts. And I love life hacks. And it's an all-in-one formula that makes it easy um, for me to cover my nutritional bases every day. One scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. And not just of basic average quality, but of really great quality. That's very important to me because of the bioavailability and the way that my body utilizes it. And so you get those benefits like gut and mood support and boosted energy and healthy looking skin, hair, and nails. And we all want that. So if you're looking for an easier way to take your supplements and you want to give them a try, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So you can go to athleticgreens.com backslash fieldcraft to check them out. That's athleticgreens.com backslash fieldcraft. Now, while I'm here with you, I wanted to tell you about Program 62. This is my baby. Round two of Program 62 starts April 18th. This is an amazing program. It is a 12 week long online virtual course where you hang out with us live once a week and we go over one subject matter topic every week and we bring in experts 
from in-house on that topic. So we cover things like self-defense to homesteading and food preservation like canning and food storage, all the way down to things like survival and bushcraft and mobility and emergency planning and medical planning and medical training and all in ways in which you can be empowered whether you are a family of six or you are single living in a one-room apartment or you are a couple and you have fur puppies, fur babies, whatever your life looks like, this program was built to help get you from a starting point of not knowing how to fully build out and safeguard yourself in every foundational capacity when it comes to your preparedness and get you to a place where you feel very confident in 12 weeks. I, um, I have taken so much pride in building out this course. It is very thorough and I really hope you guys look into joining us for round two. We would love to have you. I also want to tell you about the Resilience Rendezvous coming up on April 28th to May 1st in Heber City, Utah. Here you will be joined by some of our Fieldcraft team and other experts in the resilience field like Brian Peters, where you will learn all about how to build your own capabilities and resilience by pushing yourself to the limit and really learning what you're capable of, as well as some tips and tricks to make it a bit easier to up-level yourself in that capacity. And then I also want to tell you about a women's warrior hunt retreat. And it's combined with a 3D archery shoot over in California, right outside of San Diego. This will be May 31st to June 4th. This will be my second time attending this retreat. And I will be there with other team members where we will be outlining how your survival and your preparedness and self-reliance make you so much more capable and ready to get out there this hunting season. It's going to be amazing and I can't wait to meet all of you guys. So if any of those things sound good to you and you feel called to really push yourself this year, I highly suggest you come out and meet us. This is what we love to do is to train with you guys. So check out our website so you can read more about it and I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? Ketone IQ. Yeah, this is a mid-roll break. We're talking about Ketone IQ, a product I've been using for years now. It's made by HVMN. And it's a product that I've been using because I do have traumatic brain injury. I also have a little bit of fogginess. But it can benefit everybody because it gives you the same clarity you would get when you're in ketosis. That ketone ester puts you in that ketosis state of mental clarity and it's like caffeine without the jitters. I love it. So if you're interested in Ketone IQ, um, go ahead and go to HVMN. That's That's HotelVictorMN.com. That's HotelVictorMikeNovember, HVMN.com. And use Fieldcraft, one word, to save 15%. Again, go to HVMN.com and save 15% off with the code Fieldcraft. Now back to the podcast. So now with your, okay, so again, I knew that there was going to be so much to bite off here. You, you've you got the background in the military. You've got the jujitsu background. You've got the uh, movie uh, SME background. When does the transition from military life to civilian life working 
with your current company take place? Like, what was that decision-making process like? Explain how you made the transition from the military life to civilian life. Yeah. So in my case, I was doing most of the things that I'm doing now in the early days. So while I was in the Marine Corps, I was actively fighting in, in no holds barred. And because of that, I would have a lot of the people in the L.A. area asking me to do protection work for them down in Mexico. Uh, and I'm a Spanish speaker. So they thought that fighting was correlated to protection, which, as you probably know, it's not. There's no relationship between the two in reality. If I do everything right, we don't have a fight, right? right. Um, and and you don't want to be physically fighting someone when you're protecting someone because not only is it a liability, but you can't see what's happening with them and you're creating a ton of problems in the process. And if you're in a foreign country, you may or may not be armed. So there are a lot of components to it. So I was going down to Mexico doing that while I was in the Marine Corps, while I was fighting. And eventually what happened is a guy came into my gym at Hicks and Gracie's. Uh, it was in Pacific Palisades. And he started training with me. He was taking private lessons. And eventually he asked me to come have dinner with him and his girlfriend or fiance at the time. And hey, come to Beverly Hills. When you get off work, we'll meet you up dinner. And I was in my office, service officer in the Marine Corps, uh, a green uniform. I went from my office, which was at uh, the 405 in Wilshire, to Beverly Hills. I got there. He introduced me to his fiance, who was Madonna. And that was kind of the start of the entertainment side. So it literally, as soon as I ended active service, I went to work for her. So the guy was Guy Ritchie and Guy basically wanted to do jujitsu and Madonna needed an extra security guy on the team. So I got slotted to do both. And uh, I left the Marine Corps and went straight to work for them. Yeah, Guy Ritchie, I don't think people realize he's, he's a black belt himself. Guy Ritchie is a black belt. He he got his black belt from uh, Henzo Gracie maybe seven years ago or so. So Guy trains hard. Um, not every celebrity trains the way Guy trains. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guy was into bare knuckle karate. Guy was into judo. You know, I would train him on the set and he he worked his ass off. He was not afraid to get punched or kicked or choked or thrown. And um, and he earned his black belt. So he's he's one of the few. Yeah, there are a few Hollywood guys that are like sticklers for for attention to detail. Like I, I podcasted Dan Winkler a while back and we were talking about Michael Mann and Michael Mann loves the sound of authentic gunfire in his movies. So if you watch Heat or you watch Collateral or you watch uh, Last of the Mohicans, right, all authentic. It seems like Guy Ritchie's that type where if he is going to portray something, he wants it to be as authentic as possible. I mean, is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, it is. You know, Guy's not, he's changed over the years, obviously, as he gets older and he Mm -hmm. he becomes more famous, he becomes a little bit more PC. But Guy is very real, very visceral, very kind of like authentic in terms of of those things. And, And he's interested and he's motivated and he's hands on. And that's not that's not super common in Hollywood. Man, so you, you you jump right into it, and it's not like you're working with like a B-list actor or actress. You go right to Madonna and Guy Ritchie. Now, how does the the business grow from there? Because I know your client list is fairly extensive, and from the photos I've seen online, I mean, you've got some some big names. I mean, was it all word of mouth, or is there another apparatus that gets you to to grow that business? No, shockingly, all of it is word of mouth, and and to be fair. Um, most of it isn't founded because the people that are hiring you in the entertainment realm don't really know what it is that you do. So they mm-hmm. don't understand what close protection is. 
Um, and so I'm not a very big guy and a lot of people that work for me are, are a little bit smaller. I'm probably the smallest guy I know in the industry. I'm 5'10 and 180 pounds. So I'm, I'm tiny in our world, but they hire us for more of the cerebral component. So we're doing a lot of advancing, a lot of choreography, a lot of planning, a lot of assessments. And, and we're mostly low pro with the exception of a few situations. So, um, our business is 100% word of mouth when it comes to the entertainment side. And in fact, the governmental work that we still do, uh, mm-hmm. both state and federal, that's word of mouth too. You know, we don't have any promotional mechanism. In fact, the reason that we're talking right now and the reason I've done any podcast or, or started any social media is to sell books um, right, you know, right. on the subject. So without that, you know, we don't really need social and everything is is passed on so as you noted kind of we have a lot of big clients and you get one big client at least to two two to four and uh, you kind of follow the fibonacci sequence there right mm-hmm. one plus one equals two two plus the previous number one equals three three plus two equals five five plus three equals eight and you kind of grow in a spiral pattern and we did that and i realized very early on that i was going to hit the ceiling right the cap of what i could make unless i developed a team and brought guys on board and there's also a big problem with trust. You know, the greatest threat that we face is from the inside. So the more I have of my own teammates, not only does my company make more money, but the more control we have, the more um, trust we have. And those are pretty critical components. I, w- I want to talk about your book in just a second, but I feel like we need to explain the how you and Ryan met, right? Because he's our, our common connection here. So how did you meet, you know, our, our buddy Ryan? Uh, we crossed over through the industry over the years. You know, mm-hmm. you let's say let's say you have a big festival, something like a, a Coachella, um, and let's say it's I don't know Tool and Metallica are playing as headline acts. The band members will typically come out to see the other band members, at least at the top level. And so you'll end up meeting the guys doing close protection or, or personal security for the artist of the other entity because they'll come advance. They'll do a site survey. Um, you know, they want to know how to get to a certain place or get on the stage or how to get out or how to, you know, maybe they want to borrow or, or utilize some type of police escort that you have available to you. So there's a lot of communication in that realm. And so that's how I, I met Ryan is, is through that. And, I, and if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Coachella. So that's not an uncommon situation for us. Did you end up at Fire Festival, that that train wreck? No, no. I, <laughs> you know, there's been plenty of train wrecks. I <laughs> I tell you, if you if you look at the music industry, because of the lack of control mechanisms that, that that they don't have, um, mm-hmm. they have a lot of problems. And if I were to go and say, Hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z to protect yourself. They'd laugh because like, we're not going to put 5 million into this thing. But as soon as something happens, they've got a hundred million to put in it. So everything is reactive in nature in the entertainment side, at least, uh, relative to security, man. I'm, you know, I, I think about, you know, all the lessons that could be learned. And I think I asked, Ryan, the same question. I was like, well, what can translate over to the listener, right? Like what could they learn from your experience? If you, if you could offer someone advice, I mean, obviously I want to talk about these books. I'm looking at them now on, on Amazon, but, uh, if you had to offer say like three words of wisdom or three tips that you'd recommend, Hey, this will keep you, uh, keep you safe or keep you relatively safe or safer than the average person that has no awareness. What are some tips that you would give? First is to know your AO, right? So know where you're going, what's your area of operation. So if you know you're going to a specific area and there's a potential for a problem, 
know something like where a trauma level one hospital is at, right? Because you might not want to wait with, with large crowds of people to have an ambulance take you there. So know your area of operation, where are you going to go? What can you do? And moving in crowds, kind of seeing patterns in crowds is really important. And so that would be the second thing I say. So anybody that's familiar with, with you know, the Marine Corps Combat Hunter Program, they can look into things like baseline anomaly, where you're able to identify what's normal in your environment, what are normal crowd movement patterns. Then you can establish what an anomaly is, something that is outside the baseline of normalcy. So there can be an anomaly above the baseline where something is added to an environment, uh, and there can be an anomaly below the baseline where something's removed from an environment. And and you can only determine that if you know what the baseline is. And then all anomalies are not critical anomalies. A lot of the anomalies that occur are benign anomalies. So you're going to have to first establish that baseline. How does a crowd look at a X concert? And what do they normally do? What is the profile of the average patron? And what are the behaviors that they have in a crowd? And once I know that and I can figure out if there's an anomaly, then I can make my decisions based on that. Do I stay here when I see an anomaly and say, okay, I don't think it's a critical anomaly, it's benign, or it's critical, but I'm still going to stay because I think I can manage the threat? Or do I move my position, but I stay at the show? Or do I cancel, I evacuate, I leave, I, I don't want to stick around to see this thing unfold. So, you know, those would be the main things that, that I would look at for an average everyday person when they're coming to a large scale event. And that could be any type of event. Man, that sounds a lot like, like tracking in nature, right? You look for baseline and disruption, right? You, you're looking for the tracks that are on the ground or, or the aerial sign or the ground sign. That's the disruption to the baseline. And in this case, it's not like the, the track is there and you're following it. That track might be there and it's still there, which could represent the threat like you're referring to. You know, I'm looking at, at this book now on, on Amazon and I'm just going to read a couple of these reviews that are awesome. Like this one is, I purchased this book on the recommendation of a friend working overseas shortly after my order. Maynard of the band, of the band Tool recommended it to Joe Rogan on the JRE podcast. Three quarters of the way through and all these recommendations were right. It's excellent. This is the protection for and from humanity, which awesome name, by the way. And then uh, this one is right here. It says this book has its moments. I mean, uh, both good and not so good. The not so good moments being things that are uh, realistically most people will not be able to have access to do. Still a five-star review, by the way. Uh, I don't want to spoil things or are informed. I'll just say the not so good only accounts for 10% of the book. The other 90% is very enjoyable. So, I mean, you always get those critics that have to throw in that little jab, but I mean, if it was really that bad you know, of a jab, it wouldn't be a five-star review. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know how to take that. And, and when I say that, I, I also mean the good reviews. I, yeah, I think you yeah. have to take everything with a grain because one of the things that happens with me, like that book, um, that book was designed to give people ideas and systems and processes and concepts of protective service operations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that bought it, say from Maynard talking on Joe Rogan about it, they bought it because they're fans of the music industry and music. They don't care about security. Right, right. And so when they're reading it, none of it makes sense. It's totally out of context. They think they're going to see some type of photo behind the scenes that Maynard's hanging out drinking wine. And that's not what it is. So, you know, I had to take all of that, the good and the bad, kind of with a grain. You know, if you're interested in it, great. The current book that's out, Protective Perspective, is a little bit more geared toward those people, right? It's it's more of the photo backstage of something occurring and then us giving a, a summation of what it is or a concept behind what it is we're doing. And that is suited more for those people. But if you're kind of a, a protective security nerd or you're really into the systems and processes, that last book that you mentioned, Protection Foreign from Humanity, is absolutely 
the way to go, right? That's that's more of a, a cerebral person's book. Yeah, that would be the book I'd want to read because, you know, you've done some amazing stuff in your life. And, and I think everyone that's listening has done something that they're proud of and will never have that same experience. And it's real easy to watch from afar and be like, man, it's really cool what that guy could do or that gal could do, but I'm not going to, I'll never do that. But if you can give them something that gives them something transferable that they can apply and instantly adapt to their life. I mean, that's more useful to me than, than someone who's, you know, just like the fanboy. you know, oh man, like, yeah, you know, Maynard recommended, I'm going to listen to this, you know, or, or read this. And it's, uh, I'd rather read a book that gives me something that instantly changes my life, you know, and, and it sounds like that first book does now how, how, when was the first book out and when is, when did the new book come out? So yeah, I, I wrote another book we haven't talked about. Yeah, um, it's, I see it right which, here. <laughs> so I wrote a book about 12 or 13 years ago on tour security because when I came in, you know, I had training from all these different groups, um, you know, governmental groups, um, you know, private security contractor groups, and it was all kind of high threat protective service operations, which didn't really translate to tour security. And I didn't know how things functioned. I didn't understand what the protocols were. I didn't, I didn't understand anything. I knew a ton about protection, but I didn't know anything about that realm. And in order to integrate or assimilate into that world, you really need to know a lot of things about that specific realm. So I wrote this book because nothing existed on it. There was literally nothing on it. And and I thought, man, this sucks for guys that want to come into this. I'm going to write something. There's going to be like kind of a simple guide, a simple field manual on what you need to know if you want to get into this side of security. So that went out. And, um, you know, again, 13, 14 years ago as as kind of a primer. And then this book that we were just talking about, Protection Forum from Humanity, came out two years ago. So it was 2020. Uh, I can't say when in 2020, but sometime during COVID. And um, when it came out, you know, I, I sold a ton of books. I think we're at 5,000 in, in, in the book world. That's apparently significant. But um, that book for me was what I think is critical to anybody, to any human relative to protecting their family, relative to protecting themselves or their assets, their home, their business, whatever it is. That for me was something I was passionate about. And you mentioned the same thing. That's what I would want to read. I, I've not been a fanboy ever of anything. And and so, you know, doing this last book that I just did, it, it was awkward for me, you know, to give away these little pieces of the pie. I can't give away stuff that would expose my client or anything that's proprietary in terms of our TTPs. But giving away these little pieces, that didn't resonate with me. It was It was different. Shockingly, People wanted photos. They wanted to see stuff. Mm -hmm. They wanted to understand stuff. And because of that, this book now is starting to do very well. So it, it depends on who you are and, and what you're after. But um, if, if you're a visual learner, this is probably the best way to go. How do those behind the scenes photos work? I mean, there are celebrities I know who don't want any cameras in the back room. And I know, I mean, when I was out in LA, I went to uh, Soho House where they have like the no camera policy and, and the upstairs, there's a photo booth. You can go and sit with your friend and get a photo. But if you take out a photo, they'll tell you to sh open up your, uh, open up your phone or put it away and, and delete the photos, that type of thing. I mean, yeah. how, how did, how did you acquire those behind the scenes? Cause I saw a couple with Tommy Lee where he looked like he wanted the photo taken and he's, you know, yeah, that's, that's the norm is they, they want photos taken. But I, t I tell you that Soho house is another case study. Cause it's like a, um, a country club for hipsters. Mm -hmm. And so they hate country clubs, but then they create the same thing. It's essentially a country club, which is, is another conversation we should have. Cause we deal with a lot of people that are members of, of Soho house. Yeah. Um, so for this book in particular, it was the first 
world tour to take place post-COVID in 2022. And I had an existing relationship with the artist for many, many years and said, hey, I would like to take some pictures, you know, throughout the tour. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to associate some concept, some idea, some theory to go with it so that people understand security better. And he said, yeah, no problem. Just let me know when you want to do it. And so, you know, occasionally we get in a spot where I'd say, okay, this is it. Hey, can I have 30 seconds? Yeah, no problem. Boom, boom, snap, snap. These are not photos of, of the artists. Some capture, two or three photos will capture the back of the artist's head or, you know, uh, somebody snapped a picture of me taking the artist to, to train jujitsu. These kinds of things are in there. But a lot of this stuff has to do with, I'll give you an example, um, and, it's, and it's hard to articulate or, or envision this for most people, but I've got a picture of uh, a tractor trailer, right? So on this tour, we had 15 tractor trailers full of gear. And I've got a photo of the tractor trailer with it zoomed in on the wheel. And the wheel has these these lugs that are like eight-inch spikes, right? And in the adjoining page, I'm saying personality profile, right? If I'm trying to get insight into this person's personality, this gives me that. So talking about how people think, how they operate, um, I can get these windows into it by the things that they select or choose to associate with or, or put on their car or put on their clothes or things like that. And for us, personality profiles are a massive part of our job, uh, especially when we're dealing with someone who's maybe not direct, who's maybe not forthcoming. If I understand how to motivate or move them based on their personality, I have a higher probability of success. So if I understand how you think and what motivates you to act, then I can frame things in the way that you're able to digest them and select a more favorable option relative to security. Man, it must drive you crazy when you see people and they do a little stick figure family on the back of their vehicle, <laughs> or they say, my child is the honor roll student at, and I'll just make up a school like uh, Aberdeen middle school, you know, like it's gotta drive you crazy when you see stuff like that. Cause you're just giving away information that could be used against you. I see it all the time. I see it with guys that have stickers like a Glock sticker on the back of their car. Okay, well, I know this. I see it with a, a martial arts school in the back. I see it with your kids on the back. I see, you know, uh, we, we give a lot of stuff away. And, and you know, I, I can't speak to you, but I'm no exception because, you know, I have a certain look and I look like a Marine or a cop and I walk into an environment. If I'm dressed a certain way or behave a certain way, I'm, I'm giving pieces away. Um, the question is, you know, does that hurt me or help me? And so I have to adjust my posture relative to the environment that I'm in. You know, you were talking about the weather. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, and this is <laughs> this is 30 plus years ago, I had this, this gunny uh, in the infantry, Gunny Martinez, who, you know, he's a hardcore guy, but he was always right. And, you know, we're outside and we're going to PT and it's like crazy, crazy cold. I mean, it's, it's like 30 degrees in, in a warm environment, 30 degrees. We're going to have these little silky shorts. We're going to go for a run. So, hey, you want to do this or whatever? Hey, Sergeant Fox, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing choices. And I'm like, fuck, roger that, Gunny. <laughs> a, a great perspective, right? Like you're going into this environment. You just need to adjust for the environment. That's it. And so a lot of, a lot of the book – that the book that we're referencing talks about that, looks at that, discusses that. So the, the book previous to that discusses the systems and processes. The current book really is just getting that from a visual perspective. Freaking awesome insight. I love that expression. You know, it, it comes down to like footwear too, right? Like you can tell a lot about a person from what they wear on their feet, how they maintain their boots or, you know, if they're wearing sneakers over boots or, or whatever. I mean, it's, I, I don't think people understand how much you give away just from 
how you walk in a room, you know, do you carry your head high? And, you know, a lot of people want to pretend they're Jason Bourne and, and do the, you know, I, I know every license plate, but I mean, it exhausts you, but you give away things when you don't even realize you're giving them away. And for someone who's trained to pick them up, I mean, it's, it's a very fascinating career and study that you, you have. Now, what's next for you? Because it seems like you've already accomplished a lot. You keep growing. Are you building the business more? I mean, you're, you're selling books now. It seems like more than, more than ever. Are you really putting the focus on it? What's going to be the next step for you? You know, I'm going to continue down this path because I've been lucky enough to meet the right people and do some cool stuff and, and develop some skills and have the ability to transfer knowledge. So we're going to continue in the training realm, just in our core competencies where we're true SMEs. And then I'm going to continue to produce books. I'm going to continue to operate in the realm that I'm in. I'm just I'm just basically throttling back a bit and letting my guys kind of take the lead a little bit more as time goes on. You know, one of the things about this realm is that it's unforgiving, right? You're mm-hmm. doing 20 hour days, six days a week, and you're you're flying place to place to place to place. So as you get older, you know, it's very difficult to keep that pace up. Your body starts to break down a bit, even if you're in good shape. And I'm in for my age, you know, for a guy who's about 50 years old, I'm in good shape. But it takes a toll. So that just gets compensated for by me pulling off the road a little bit more by taking on less challenging processes. Um, one of the things that it's worked out well for us is developing relationships in foreign countries with different groups and people that, that we can have some type of co-op with, some training back and forth. And uh, that's been very interesting for me and, and beneficial in terms of knowledge and understanding of different components of, of protection and security and cultures. And I, I said, I had a feeling you, were, you weren't going to say that you were going to take it easy. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, I can't imagine being retired or just doing nothing or having nothing on the books. I mean, the way that things work for me, I'm motivated by achievement. I'm motivated by driving towards them, by learning, by developing. You know, maybe part of the book thing is because I'm constantly learning and I want to give other guys that same experience. I don't see a time where I'm not doing something new, whether it's learning a new language or a new skill, uh, learning about a new culture, wh- whatever it may be, some type of developmental progress. And and I'm still not done with, I have three black belts, I'm still not done with learning in martial arts. So I'm, you know, there may be another martial art that I decide to to go after. It's just, it's, it's part of my makeup. And I think people in general, people die when they quit learning, when they keep mm-hmm. quit progressing, when they quit achieving. Solid insight. I, I, we should probably just leave it there because, I mean, we can go on and on and on, but that's so profound. I mean, where can people find you if they need to follow you, if they want to see what you're doing? Where, where's the best place? Our website is tour, T-O-U-R, protection.com. That's probably the best place to start. So there's a little bit of a bio on there. Um, we list our celebrity clients that list us. So if they put our information in anything they have, we'll list them. We don't list our executives because none of our executives list us. We don't list our governmental entities, even though some of them do put us out there. And so people can kind of get a better feel. Plus the current book that's released, Protective Perspective, A Peek Behind the Curtain, that's on the site. Um, I would recommend that anybody that's interested in that buy the hard copy, right? The, the paperback book versus getting the e-copy. Now in the other books, the e-copy is fine. But with this one, because of the photos, because of the, the, the thickness of the paper, because of the, the texture on this specific book, it's important to have that because that's, that's part, it's part and parcel to, to what it is we produced. And then we just started on social media. I think we have starting COVID. So this would be two years now uh, on Instagram, which is at tour training. And um, there's a little bit there, not a whole lot, but something to see. So the books are available on uh, Apple. They're available on Barnes and Noble and they're available on Amazon. But 
just be mindful of, of what the book is about. Because if it's about photos and, and texture and all that kind of stuff, you, you want the paperback. Outstanding, man. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me today. Guys, check out Todd's work and uh, follow his lead because he's, he's doing it right. Todd, thanks so much. Guys, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Fieldcraft for All podcast. I've been your host, Kevin Estella. Until next time.